Lord God, we, we trust you. We trust your wisdom in giving us this word. And we believe that you intend to reveal yourself to us through it. So I pray that you would awaken us this morning to the realities that you want us to see and to embrace and to walk in from this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, again, if you are a guest, we want to welcome you here. My name is Nathan Smith. I'm one of three pastors, and um, it is my privilege not only to read the Word of God this morning, but to preach from this passage that I've just read. And uh, in some ways, this passage has to do with identity. And it seems that people, uh, I know it's true in in our Western culture, I think it's probably true of all cultures, but people seem to have a fascination with stories about those who have a hidden identity. Disney especially has kind of locked into this and capitalized on it uh, so that you, you have a story about a, a girl who grows up locked in a tower only later to discover that she's a princess and at last she sees the light. And there is also the story of the girl who grows up in obscurity, um, doesn't think she's anybody special. She finds out that she's actually the, um, the daughter of the rulers of Russia, right? And then there's, uh, there's a lot of other stories, not Disney, but there's a story of a, a boy who grows up oppressed by his aunt and uncle and his cousin Dudley. And then at the age of 11, he discovers that he's actually a famous wizard. He had this hidden identity the whole time that he didn't know about. And in real life, um, you know, people do DNA testing, sometimes motivated by uh, that they want to discover that they're descended from royalty, or maybe they want to discover that they're descended from Native Americans, or, or whatever the case may be. People are eager to find out if they have some sort of hidden identity, and we just kind of connect with those kind of stories. And, and so I thought it might interest you this morning to know that I have a hidden identity, I, I'm a priest. I don't have the collar or anything. And I'm actually part of a family of priests. And the truth is that if you're a Christian, you have a hidden identity as well. You also are a priest. And for some of you, if you know scripture, that may not be all that hidden to you. But I'm guessing that for most of us here, even those who know that, yes, as Christians, this is part of our identity, this is, this is what we're going to be talking about today, our identity as priests, even if you know that, it's probably not a part of your identity that you think about on a daily basis. But it's actually a pretty massive part of the identity that God has given to you as a Christian. And it's important to understand our identity because as Christians... Contrary to the majority culture in America, uh, as Christians, we don't have to try to figure out our identity. In fact, we must not try to figure out our, our identity just from how we feel. God, as our creator, and for us as Christians, God, as our Lord, gets to define our identity. And again, one part of our identity in Christ is as priests. We are It's actually a pretty major emphasis in the Bible. And we've talked about this a bit in several of our recent sermons as we've gone through Exodus. Uh, In fact, part of Pastor Steve's sermon summary from last week was 
uh, followers of Christ who have been called to a holy priesthood must be washed clean once for all by the blood of Jesus. Uh, But in that message, as we've done in a number of our messages recently, he just spent a brief time talking about the fact that we are priests. But this passage today in Exodus 29, it gives us an opportunity to kind of take a deeper dive into this part of our identity as Christians. So how do we become priests? Why does it matter? What's, what's the connection between um, how we are brought into the priesthood and, and how Aaron and his sons were consecrated as priests? What, what meaning in a, in a real tangible way does this have for our lives as Christians? Those are the kind of things that this passage helps us to um, understand from Scripture. And so here's the summary of this message for all believers here today. You have been chosen, consecrated, and ordained for priestly ministry. You have been chosen, consecrated, and ordained for priestly ministry. You were chosen to be a priest. And that's the first thing I want you to notice in this passage today. In Exodus 29, we see that Aaron didn't choose to be a priest. He didn't appoint himself. God chose Aaron and God chose his sons and then from them, his descendants after him. And we're going to be mainly in Exodus 29, um, but it starts off in verse 1 referring to them. So if we look back just a little bit in Exodus 28, Exodus 28 tells us who they are. And later on in 29, it talks about it as well. But Exodus 28 is all about the uh, holy garments that were to be made for the priests. And then in verse 41 of chapter 28, God tells Moses about these garments. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests." And so our passage today is all about what, what God told Moses to do. It's about what that process of anointing and consecrating looked like. But notice this, that Aaron didn't choose to be a priest. God didn't say, uh, Moses, just pick somebody and um, you know, appoint them as a priest. Moses didn't choose. Aaron didn't choose to be a priest. God chose Aaron and his sons to serve him as priests. And so when we get to chapter 29, verse 1, God says to Moses, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. And in this whole chapter, he's talking about those whom he has chosen, Aaron and his sons. These are going to be my priests. I didn't choose anyone else. And then in verse 9, we see this is going to be an ongoing thing, that it would be his descendants after him. No one could choose to be a priest. God chose Aaron and his descendants to be the priests. And this becomes even more clear in verse 44 when God says, Aaron also, he says, also referring to God saying, I'm going to consecrate the tabernacle and all these things by my, the glory of my presence. He says, Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And so these consecration ceremonies that we're going to learn about as we go through this passage, these were outward visible symbols carried out by Moses, but they were really representative of something that God was doing. He says, I'm the one who is appointing Aaron and his sons as priests. This is my choosing. This is my doing. I'm consecrating them. 
And so what this has to do with you and me as Christians, first of all, I again want to make clear that, strange as it may sound, you are a priest. First uh, Peter 2, 5 says, You yourselves, talking to the church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, this was written to Christians. And so if you are a Christian, this is to tell you, this is who you are. This is true of you. This is a part of your identity, that you are a member of a holy priesthood. And secondly, this passage tells us that if you are a priest, it's because you were chosen to be a priest. Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples in John 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you. And then Peter conveys the same message when he, he writes to later to di- some disciples later on. He opens his letter in First Peter by addressing them as the elect, which is those who were chosen. And then in chapter two, he goes on to use this same language. In verse nine, he says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood." A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Brothers and sisters, you were chosen to be a priest in God's service. You who were a rebel against God, you who were dead in your sins, you who were on the broad road that leads to destruction, God chose to consecrate, to bring near, to serve as a priest in his church. This is incredible. But because of who you were, because you were an unholy, filthy sinner, that God had chosen to be a priest, God had chosen you to serve him. He is holy. He is pure. And so you had to be consecrated. And so just as God consecrated Aaron into his priesthood, God consecrated you to be a priest. So that's the second major thing that we see in this passage, that you were consecrated to be a priest. And we see this in verse 1, where God again says to Moses, now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. That means so that. In order to make it possible. Aaron and his sons, they couldn't draw near to God just as they were. God required a process by which they would be consecrated. That means made holy. That is set apart for special service to God. And we've seen this so many times in our study of the tabernacle. But again, this process of consecration just highlights how massive of an obstacle sin is as it stands between us as unholy people and a holy God. This consecration process, again, shows that God has to deal with this, that our sin has to be dealt with before we can draw near to God. The priest had to be consecrated as God prescribed so that they could draw near to him without being destroyed. And there are four main things that God requires in this process in order for the priest to be consecrated. 
And those are washing, and we see this in verse 4. Robing, we might call it being clothed, verses 5 and 6, verse, verses 8 and 9, verses 29 and 30. There's an anointing, which is in verse 7 and verse 21. And then there are all these sacrifices, verses 10 through 20, verses 22 through 28, verses 31 through 37. And now that we have seen this reality that as Christians we have been chosen as priests, it really shouldn't surprise us that God requires the same process of consecration to bring us into this royal priesthood in the new covenant. And uh, I was surprised this week as I was studying to, um, surprised because I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't read this before, I hadn't heard this before, um, but I discovered as I was studying this passage that in the early church, this pattern of consecration was recognized when people were brought into the church. So new believers were symbolically and, um, and I guess literally washed as they were baptized. Josh, can you put that slide back up again? Um, they were washed as they were baptized. And then as they came up out of the waters of baptism, they were robed. Um, and they were robed or clothed because in the early church they were baptized in the nude. Um, and so a, a clothing was appropriate. They, they were gender-separate baptisms, by the way. Um, I'm not advocating for this, but um, it's actually kind of beautiful. This is a total side, side trail. But uh, the reason that they baptized people naked is because they wanted to make clear this picture of the new birth. And babies aren't born with clothes on, so they were like... We're going to make this picture clear. People are going to be baptized without any clothes on. But then they would come up out of the water and they would be robed, clothed, often in a white robe. And then they would be anointed with oil. And then they would receive the Lord's Supper as a symbolic representation of, of the fact that they were taking part in Christ's sacrifice of himself. And so this pattern was just seen as in this, um, in this process of of bringing people into the church because um, they recognize that this pattern really does carry over in a real way into the New Testament. And, and we don't do all those things because they're not prescribed for us in the New Testament. Um, but again, it, it shows that Christians have long seen this connection, the continuity in, in this pattern of consecration. And so to see this for ourselves more clearly, let's look closely at each of these elements, and we'll spend more time on some of them than others. But uh, the first one, washing, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on because Pastor Steve preached a great message uh, all about washing last week. If you um, want to learn more about what it means that we are washed as we're consecrated into the priesthood, I would, I would encourage you to go listen to that message if you weren't here. But I do just want to read one passage from the New Testament that connects to this washing, because this passage is such a beautiful reminder of just the overflowing grace of God that he would freely choose to wash us free of this, of the filth of our sin. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. Praise the Lord. And you were robed. You were clothed. And again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one because uh, Pastor Jason preached a message a few weeks ago all about the significance of the priestly garments. But this also is a glorious facet of our consecration as well. As God consecrated you to be his priest, he robed you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is a perfect righteousness. It is a righteousness that's foreign to us in our natural state. It's a righteousness that none of us have achieved or ever could achieve. But in him, that is through faith in Jesus, we are clothed with that perfect, spotless righteousness. That's why we sang earlier in the solid rock, we look forward to that day when Christ returns and we stand before the throne. And what does that song say? Faultless, we stand before the throne. Why? Because we're dressed in his righteousness alone. That's how we stand faultless before the throne. Not, not by our own faultless, sinless life because none of us have lived that life. But we stand faultless before the throne, robed in the righteousness of Christ. The third thing is that there is this anointing. There's this anointing with oil. And the oil that was used to anoint uh, the priests, it wasn't just a plain oil, it was a special blend of oil and spices. It was to be made exactly as God prescribed. Uh, it's, and that is in the next chapter, chapter 30, verses 22 through 25. And in that chapter, in chapter 30, uh, we see that God repeats these instructions to Moses to anoint Aaron and his sons with that oil as part of the consecration ceremony. And, and he doesn't just tell them to anoint the priest, but he says, actually, I want you to anoint the tabernacle and all of the uh, various articles that are going to be in the tabernacle. It's all going to be anointed with this oil. And so, uh, starting in verse 29, as God's speaking about these things, he says... You shall consecrate them, that's the tabernacle and all those things, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So the oil of consecration was a holy oil. Anything that it touched became holy. That is, it was set apart for special service to God. And the New Testament writers, as they were led by God, they recognized that this anointing oil found its ultimate fulfillment in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Gospels, there are quite a few passages that talk about Jesus having been anointed 
by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then later passages, passages uh, speak of those who followed him as being anointed, but not with the holy oil, but by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Apostle John in 1 John 2 makes this really explicit. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you ha- all have knowledge. He's talking to Christians. He says, you've all been anointed by the Holy One. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. You've been anointed by Him. He's been poured out upon you. So as Christians, we've not been anointed with a holy oil, but we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And this anointing by the Holy Spirit is, is a pretty huge and significant emphasis in Scripture. And yet in Reformed circles, at least the Reformed circles that I am part of and know of, uh, this anointing doesn't seem to be talked about all that much. Uh, and it might be that anointing has just that word anointing or the anointing of the Spirit. It might be because it's been uh, misused, spoken of in an unbiblical way uh, by some. And so maybe Reformed people just kind of shy away from the word because they don't want to be associated with those those ideas. They don't want to be misunderstood. That may be the case. But um, the way that anointing is sometimes misused um, is it's often in charismatic circles. It's often in the word of faith um, movement where the idea of the anointing of the spirit is sometimes used in ways that are just flat out wrong, but probably more often used in ways that are just too limited. Um, So they might say that a particular preacher is anointed to preach. Well, yeah, if he's a Christian, then he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And if he is a gifted preacher, then it's because the Holy Spirit has gifted him to preach. So yes, it's true that uh, a gifted preacher is anointed. I've heard the phrase used about um, a particularly skilled singer who's leading in musical worship. That they might, it might be said that, man, they are anointed to lead in worship. And again, if this person is a believer, they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. If they have a gift to lead people to see the glory of God, then it's because they've been gifted by the Spirit through that anointing of the Spirit. But the problem is that if we use the word anointed just to refer to preachers or singers, it's just way too limited. It's unbiblical because it's unlimited. The more biblical and and therefore the more beautiful way to talk about the anointing is to say that every Christian is anointed. Every Christian is gifted by the Spirit to minister within the body of Christ. You... Christians are all anointed. You all have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve the church. Romans 12, starting in verse 6, says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's not a complete list of the ways that the Spirit gifts individual Christians. There are more. But brothers and sisters, listen, you are all anointed by the Spirit. And so you are all gifted 
by the Spirit. And they're not all, as you can see from this partial list, they're not all flashy or noticeable gifts, but they are all essential to the life and health of the church. So whatever your gift is, it has been given to you by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it's to be used in your priestly service within the church. Because the church is now the tabernacle of God. It's it's where he dwells among his people. It's through the church. This is really a beautiful truth that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of us, anointing us sealing us in Christ and then equipping us, giving us gifts to serve the body. And so how are you using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you within the body to build up the body? How are you using that anointing that you have received? The last element of this consecration process is sacrifice. The consecration of the priests required sacrifices. And this really deserves at least a sermon in itself because it's the bulk of the chapter. I'm actually going to spend just a little bit of time on it. There were three sacrifices. Uh, There's some stuff that's very kind of odd and I wish I had time to explain, but um, I don't. But um, they all point to certain things. Things that, that may seem strange to us culturally, uh, putting blood on the, on the earlobe and the thumb and the big toe, which my kids call the daddy toe. Um, that seems strange to us culturally. It made sense for them. I don't have time to go into all those details, but uh, in these three sacrifices, the first sacrifice is called the sin offering. The second is the burnt offering, and the last one's called a wave offering, sometimes also called a, a fellowship offering. And uh, there's a commentator, Alec Matier. And he explains the uh, significance of these offerings in in kind of a brief and I think helpful way. The sequence is that sin had been covered and cleansed via the sin offering. Unqualified commitment to the life of obedience had been made via the burnt offering. And now with the wave offering, Aaron and his sons entered upon a joyful life of fellowship with the Lord. So that in short is uh, the significance of these offerings. And uh, there's actually more significance to them, which I'll talk about in just a few minutes. But what I want to point out here is that in the new covenant, we could only be consecrated through sacrifice as well, right? It's only through faith in Christ's once for all sacrifice of himself that we are reassured that our sin has been covered, that we are credited with his life of obedience to God, and that we now, through his sacrifice, have entered into this life of fellowship with God. And so in this way, through washing, through robing, through anointing, and through sacrifice, God has consecrated you into his service as a priest. So the last thing I want to look at is what God's purpose is for this consecration. What was his purpose? purpose for Aaron and his sons? What does it, what does it mean to be consecrated, to be ordained? What does it mean for you that you have been consecrated as a priest? Well, it means that you were ordained for ministry. You were ordained for ministry. And depending on your background, that might sound weird. 
uh, might sound wrong even. Like, uh, no, I think it's priests and pastors who are ordained. Ministers are ordained, but not just, uh, I wasn't ordained. Um, And I'll just say straight out that the idea that only priests and pastors are ordained is, it's not a biblical idea. Uh, I don't have time to go this morning into the whole history of how this practice of ordaining priests and ministers in the church, uh, how that all developed. But I will say that it's not found anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, It really developed over the first three or four centuries of the church, ultimately culminating in the Roman Catholic sacramental understanding of the priesthood in which uh, the priests were actually seen to be the only ones who could act as a mediator between God and man. That's kind of how that progressed in in that idea of ordination. And in the Protestant tradition after the Reformation, uh, that practice was modified, but it, it was carried on, it still is carried on in some denominations in the practice of ordaining men into gospel ministry. And I think that in both cases, this practice of ordination is actually an unfortunate practice because it either denies, in the case of uh, Catholicism, or it obscures, in the case of some Protestant traditions, this biblical reality, this thing that's clear in Scripture that every believer is In fact, an ordained priest. And in order to see that, it's helpful to know where the word ordination came from and what the original Hebrew that's being translated as ordination or ordained means. So the word ordained actually worked its way into the church from Roman culture around 300 AD. It was a term that had to do with the social hierarchy within Roman culture. So the the ordo the order of things, things were ordered in this certain hierarchy. It's just the way their, their cultural work, c- culture worked. You had people, you know, top tier, second tier, bottom tier. And that word ordination came to be used in the church to indicate that the bishops, the elders in the church, were kind of a spiritual cut above everybody else. They were ordained. But the Hebrew phrase that's translated, ordained here in uh, Exodus 29 and other places in the Old Testament, it literally means to fill the hands of. To fill the hands of. And metaphorically, when it says that Aaron and uh, and his sons as priests were ordained, uh, metaphorically it meant that they were being prepared, they were being equipped for this, their priestly ministry. But in a very real sense, it meant that their hands would literally be filled with the sacrifices that they were going to offer up while fulfilling their priestly duties. And we see this in verse 24 with one of these sacrifices. God tells Moses to take the choice portions of the second ram, and then he says, put all of these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. So their hands were filled, and this filling of the hands with the sacrifice was the literal way in which they were ordained, because that's what that word means. It means to have their hands filled to do what they had been consecrated to do, which is to offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people. Their hands were filled with these sacrifices, because that's what God had called them to do. And so in this way, their consecration ceremony was actually uh, kind of 
job training as well because the same sacrifices that were being offered through this um, consecration process, that sin offering, the burnt offering, the wave offering, the fellowship offering, they were the exact same kinds of sacrifices that they would be making with the same sort of prescriptions that God had given to Moses for these sacrifices. This is to be the same thing that the priests were doing. Their, their hands were being filled up to do the, the work that they had been called to as priests. And in the same way, the, the gospel of Christ's sacrifice of himself on our behalf, that, that sacrifice that brought us into the priesthood, that, that sacrifice that was part of our consecration as priests, that's the same sacrifice that you now hold out to others in your service as a priest. Your hands have been filled with this gospel. You've been ordained into gospel ministry. You serve as a priest by holding out that gospel to those around you. And that includes any, any lost people in your life, those who have not yet heard or not yet received the gospel. It also includes others within the church. We serve one another as priests. We hold out the gospel to one another because it is our life. This is the priestly ministry that we're called to. And this is why you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You've been gifted to do this work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says that the job of, of us as pastors, it's to equip you. It's to equip the saints. That's, that's you, church. It's to equip you to do the work of ministry. We equip you through the word to offer up your lives as living sacrifices to God, to offer up spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ that are pleasing to God for the glory of God, which is why I'm, I'm preaching this morning. It's to equip you, to help you to embrace your identity as a priest in the service of God because you have been chosen, you've been consecrated, and you've been ordained for this gospel ministry you are a priest. And as we prepare to commune with God through the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to remind you that, that we have this priesthood only through our faith in Jesus, the one who is our great high priest. And so if you have your communion elements, I, I encourage you to go ahead and take those. As I remind you that it was through Jesus, our great high priest who he said, the father has consecrated me and he sent me into the world. He himself was consecrated as a priest. He was anointed by God as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him without measure. And he lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could offer up himself as the final sacrifice, making atonement for our sins as our great high priest. And this morning, as we think about the significance of communion and what it means that God would bring sinners into fellowship with himself, I want to ask, are you trusting in him alone for your sin? Are you trusting in him for your righteousness? 
Have you embraced this call? If you'd say, yes, I'm trusting in him to be forgiven of my sin. Have you embraced this call to take up your cross every day, to die to yourself, to, to embrace this gospel ministry, to hold out the gospel to others? And if that's true for you, um, I misspoke a second ago. We're, you don't have your communion elements because they're up here. But when I... When I ask you to stand and come and receive the communion elements, if you have received Christ, if you are walking in fellowship with God through Christ, then I invite you to come and take, and you'll exit to your left, you'll come up and take the communion elements. Uh, We invite you to take them back to your seat, to spend time there in prayer. You may want to pray with your family. Um, if you're here as, as a leader of your family, you may want to take a few moments and explain the significance of communion to, um, to your family before you take that together. But the bread, the wafer, that represents the body of Christ that was sacrificed for our sin, the blood that poured out from him is represented by the juice in the cup. He didn't offer up a lamb, a bull or a ram as a sacrifice. He offered up himself. He poured out his blood that we would be consecrated by being sprinkled with his blood. And if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, we ask ask that you not come and take communion. But we would love to explain more to you about this gospel because it's, as I've been saying this morning, as Christians, this is what we're, we're called to do. We're called to offer the gospel to others. And so we would love to, to talk with you um, about that. I will be down here in front if you'd like to pray as others are coming up to take their communion elements. Um, I would love to pray with you. And if you want to talk with one of us, grab, grab me or, or Pastor Steve. He'll be up here in a little bit. Um, you can just grab one of us before you leave today or fill out a connection card. We would love to share this gospel with you. Um, I'm going to pray, and then why don't you go ahead and stand, and I'll pray. And then for those who should, come to the Lord's table. God, we are so, um, we're just so overwhelmed with your grace that you would, that you would wash us clean from the stains of sin that we could never cleanse ourselves from. Some of us tried through living a religious life, through going to church a lot, through whatever. God, we tried, but we could never wash ourselves clean. But you've done it through the blood of Christ. You've robed us in his righteousness. You have anointed us with your spirit. You sacrificed your son for our sake. God, we are overwhelmed by these truths. I pray that you would glorify your son who not only died but rose again through this communion time. We pray in his name, amen.